Welcome back, everyone. Today, we have another episode of Science and Storytelling, a GSA podcast celebrating the 75th anniversary of GSA. And on this episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Debbie Carr. She's a fellow of the Gerontological Society of America and professor and chair of the sociology department at Boston University. Her topics of interest are death and dying, bereavement, family relationships over the life course, and the stigma associated with health conditions, including obesity and disability. Thank you, Dr. Carr, for being with us. Thank you for inviting me on. Yeah, so first let's get into the science. Can you tell us a little bit about your research and which of your research findings have translated into practical use? Great. Well, two of my main areas of research are end-of-life issues and end-of-life planning, and then bereavement. And like most social gerontologists, we do our research to publish in journals, and we hope that it falls into the hands of practitioners or policymakers who can translate it into real-world impacts. So one topic I've studied for many years is advanced care planning. And As you know, Brenda, as a specialist, advanced care planning are the sets of activities that people do to articulate their healthcare preferences when they're still healthy enough and cognitively intact enough that they can tell others what kind of medical treatments that they want or don't want at the end of life. And despite the importance of that for receiving care that one wants with the hopes of achieving a good death, it's only a minority of all U.S. adults that do any advanced care planning, even among older adults. And so that's what motivated my interest in the topic. And also the fact that there are tremendous disparities. There are socioeconomic disparities in who makes these preparations. And there were really stark racial and ethnic differences in um, who does advanced care planning. And that's problematic because lack of planning can lead to more pain, more suffering, more difficult bereavement experiences for the family members left behind. And so this is yet another outcome where we see people with less income and those belonging to historically oppressed racial or ethnic groups faring less well. So that's kind of the background of uh, some of the papers I've done. And so a couple of findings that I think have high potential for translation into policy and practice is one study I did looking to figure out why is it that people with lower levels of income and education in particular are less likely to engage in advanced care planning. And in doing statistical analysis and then also kind of reading the open-ended responses on the surveys, it became clear to me that one main reason why lower income people do not do end-of-life planning is that they have very few assets. They have very little wealth. They have low rates of home ownership. And as a result, they tend not to have wills as often, property wills. And so if you don't have a home, if you have nothing to bequeath to your children, you're probably not going to have a will. And for many people, that's the point when they do their advanced care planning. They go to their lawyer, they do their will, and then in the process, they'll do the advanced care planning. So folks who don't have a lawyer or who don't have property to protect don't even get put into that process of doing advanced care planning. So that just makes it all the more important to provide opportunities to do advanced care planning in healthcare settings and not necessarily ERs when people come in under conditions of distress, but just having that conversation early and often through the regular visit with a clinician. And I think that's why it's so great that the ACA now has a stipulation that a doctor-patient consultation about end-of-life issues is something that's covered as part of the Medicare beneficiary package. So I think that's a policy that really was terrific. And we're all glad to see that ACA looks like it's going to persist. So that's one one example. 
I can tell you that that policy is live and in living color in my practice as a nurse practitioner in geriatric primary care, seeing patients who are mostly covered by Medicare or Medicare Advantage plans. It was actually a yearly requirement and one of the metrics that were tracked on our end to make sure that we had updated advanced directive documents, medical power of attorney documents, especially for people in lower socioeconomic status who had not considered it ever before. Because like you said, they're living on a very low fixed income and they don't have many assets to their name. So to them, having a will is something that rich people do, right? But Regardless of your assets, you have a right to make decisions about what is what is done at the end of your life. And that's how I usually brought it up. Um, you know, this is your right and you should actually make this decision now while we're here and nothing is happening so that your family doesn't go through the turmoil of having to make these decisions on your behalf. Yeah, absolutely. And that's like, I think just the education component of what you're doing also is really important. And that's another finding I have in some of my studies and looking to see why is it that Black and Latinx communities have lower rates of advanced care planning. And partly it's because wealth is tremendously stratified in the United States. But I found a really interesting thing in opening up my survey data and looking to see what the actual responses were. And for the Spanish-speaking respondents in this one study I did of advanced care planning, question of why don't you have a living will for those who didn't have it is the responses were things like, I don't own a home. I don't have money. I have nothing to protect. And it dawned on me, ah, the phrase living will, right, in some communities might not be even a commonly used phrase, right? And so anything that those on the front lines of care are doing to educate people about what these things are, in fact, their mere existence and conveying it as something that helps you to live and die on your own terms, but most also importantly, doing it for the family. And as a bereavement researcher, you know, my other hat that I wear, I know that grief experiences and the difficulties family members have are shaped powerfully by how their loved one died. And if someone is forced to make difficult decisions about end-of-life care, if brothers and sisters are squabbling about what they think mom and dad want at the end of life, in, in the process, kind of impairing their own relationship, now that, that's something that's not good. And no dying person would want to leave that legacy of having squabbling children over end-of-life issues. So presenting these end-of-life options and conversations is something that's done for the good of the family as well as the patient, I think is another finding of my research that I think has high potential to inform clinical practice. That's a great point because we think about it in terms of the patient, at least clinicians, right? This is the person sitting in front of me. And we don't see the cloud of people behind them who would be affected by their death or an, a near-death experience in which those questions may come up. So in this field, what do you think is in the future and how can those of us who want a career in gerontology focus our work? That's a great question. I think one thing that we need to continue to do is to kind of do better to serve underserved communities and to figure out what are their particular obstacles, right? And they may be different for different subpopulations. So trying to figure out what is the obstacle? Is it the fear of talking about death, which we know is common? Is it the fear that talking about death is a jinx, right? You hear that in some cases that you might hasten your own death by even talking about it. 
The other is, are you worried that you're going to upset your children? And so figuring out what the specific obstacles are to the conversation and ensuring that the healthcare providers who have these conversations are mindful of that and kind of letting the patients with their family members guide the conversation. I think that's something that's really important. Another finding of my research that I hope kind of translates into um, you know, helping uh, patients kind of achieve the end of life they, care that they want and, and guiding further research is understanding what factors guide people's preferences for end-of-life care. So one thing I found in my work is that people's choices about whether they want life support or whether they want chemo, you know, all these decisions, it tends not to be based on medical knowledge, right? Your average person doesn't really know that much about health, but they do know what they've seen in other people. So they saw their mom die of bad death. They know, I don't want to die like my mom. So what can I do to not die like my mom? I don't want to die hooked up to wires and tubes. So I think that's another area of research that's really important is looking at individuals, again, within the larger family network and looking to see what are the social factors or the perceptual factors that guide individuals' preferences for end-of-life care, their practices regarding end-of-life care, and really doing research that tries to get into the mindset of the patients in ways that we haven't previously. Yeah, I totally agree with the framing, right? Because even in my own clinical practice, I've thought, okay, I need to ask the patient about the advanced directive and I need to review their labs with them. And I've gone into the room and I'm like, okay, today we're going to review our labs and then we're going to talk about your advanced directive. And they're like, why do we need to talk about me dying after you review my labs? <laughs> They're like, do you have bad news for me? And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. It's just, they just happen to fall on the same day, but completely unrelated that we're doing advanced care planning when I'm reviewing your results, you know, but to me, it's just an item on a checklist, but I do need to be more cognizant of how I'm framing it and how I bring it up to people Because when you are in your 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I've had patients well into their 90s, and you bring that up, it's a lot more sensitive than, to me, I'm in my 30s, right? So, you know, I know I'm not invincible, but in my head, it's not as close. Exactly. As for for older people, and I think, you know... I think there's so many important issues that as much as we made great progress, there's still always room for more progress. And you know, one other research area that is starting to take off is looking to see what has the impact been of the ACA. Are doctors having the conversation? But more importantly, are they having these kind of rote conversations or are they tailoring them to the needs of the patient? And what kinds of conversations are effective in terms of the health outcomes they look at? So do these conversations predict things like lower levels of pain, right? Lower levels of grief among the family members and trying to figure out what makes for an effective conversation and making sure that they happen not in a perfunctory way, but in a way that really meets the needs of the patients and their families. Right. And even for us to have the insight to offer that choice, right? If you were to get cancer, would you want chemotherapy? And let me explain the benefits and risks to both, to doing it or not doing it. And, you know, I've, I've had patients who have healthcare professionals in their families and they tend to be, they tend to have an advocate, 
Right. There's someone there who can educate them and we can do that too. But sometimes in the busyness of clinical practice, you're not considering all those aspects, right? And so there is a need for more training for those of us who are having those critical conversations to say, you have choices. I'm not telling you what to do or what is best for you. Some people would do years of chemotherapy and others would say, I don't want any at all, right? So that is a really great point. And so we've discussed the science a little bit. Now we want to get into the storytelling. So what got you as a sociologist into the field of gerontology? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think like many members of GSA, we just always had kind of an affinity of, with older adults. You know, we have either lovely grandparents. Totally. Or, yes. In my case, one of my very first jobs, actually my first job was I was a paper girl and, you know, delivering the newspapers. But my route was a low-income senior housing project near my home. And so I got to every single day talk to about 50 older adults who were living in this apartment. And so that kind of got me interested in just, you know, thinking about aging, but I kind of forgot about it. And then years later, I went to sociology graduate school and the project that I was hired to be a research assistant on was a project that had traced a cohort of high school seniors from the year they graduated in 1957 through, you know, by the 90s. I was in the graduate school. This is the Wisconsin Longitudinal Study Yes, it was constant. I am totally data mining that right now. So I started as that on that as a graduate student, and I never made the connection that it, this was an aging sample, right? I was first brought in to study things like sibling similarity, which was interesting to me because I'm one of five children. Um, but as that project evolved and I worked with it as my career evolved, it ended up from being a study of you know education and careers to a study of aging. And so I did my dissertation on that data set, but then as the sample aged, and then after I got my PhD and became a professor, I started studying bereavement. And in doing all my bereavement research, I realized that in sociology and even in psychology, most of the bereavement research that focuses on how do people cope, are they depressed or not, focused on traits of like the individual survivor. And it really didn't get any data on death context. How did the person die? And I started reading about things like advanced care planning and being prepared. And so consequently, I went back and designed a survey module for the Wisconsin Longitudinal Study, kind of returning to my roots, uh, my grad school um, data set and asking a bunch of questions about advanced care planning. And so that's one way I kind of got into this topic. But yeah, it's interesting when you study end-of-life issues, people will often ask you, how does someone who's so happy and good-natured come to study death, right? I don't know, you might have gotten that question as well. <laughs> yeah. And my answer is always, well, it's one of the very few outcomes in the social sciences that every single person is going to experience. Everyone is going to die. And I feel like my job is to help to figure out what are things that can make it less bad for people, whether it's less bad for the person who's dying to do research that helps them to come up with a more self-determined death that's marked by comfort rather than pain. And then on the bereavement side, ensuring that when people experience the loss of a loved one, they won't have residual anger about bad care received, or they won't have family squabbles. And so trying to identify those aspects of the death and dying process that can make it 
less bad, right, for the dying patient and their loved ones. Right. And even just to be someone who can take that negative stigma, that that negative connotation of death, because for me as a clinician and especially someone who's worked in geriatrics, death is a normal part of life and a normal part of my practice. Right. And attrition in my field is not because people didn't like your care. It's because they passed away. And so I, for one, like I've brought this topic up to my parents and initially they were like, do you expect us to die soon? (laughs) And I'm like, no, but I accept the fact that you will. And, and I want us to be ready because I love you. Right. And so it's hard to say, I want to do this difficult thing because I love you. But I think that there have to be those of us who are here to say, death is a normal part of life. Absolutely. And I think most people aren't raised in that way, right? You're teaching your parents about that. And my case is a little different. Um, you know, my parents had serious health problems at pretty young ages. So when I was like in sixth grade, my father was diagnosed with terminal illness. In the same year, my mom was hit by a car and almost died. And um, I say this not for pity, like I had a very happy family life, you know, despite that. But so death was always a reality. Now, this was things that if I asked my parents as a kid, are you going to die someday? They would be like, well, of course, everyone's going to die, but not for a long time. But it did teach me that accidents can happen and people can have the onset of a terminal illness at a relatively young age. And so that's just reality. And so I think I learned pretty young to talk about these things kind of like an adult, but it does make you seem a little weird if you're talking about death is just a normal part of life when you're a teenager as opposed to, you know, a 40-year-old professor. Um, but, you know, those conversations are important. And I actually wonder about the impact of COVID because it's been so pervasive. It has forced people to talk about death and dying and to talk about the kind of care people want. So you just want people to feel comfortable having these conversations and supported having these conversations so they can die on their own terms to the extent possible. Correct. Yes. Is there any research, either yours or that you know of, about this process in earlier life for people who have terminal illnesses before, you know, their senior years? Yeah. Um, You know, it's interesting. Most of the advanced care planning research does happen with older populations. And I haven't seen much with younger families. And most of the research on earlier life bereavement looks at like, what is the impact of having an early loss on your life history? Right. Um, But that's a, a good question. I suspect we need more and more of it. And I think you know, we're all gerontologists. And so we think about end-of-life conversations as things that are so critical for older adults. But, you know, we know if we do kind of the kind of epidemiology of healthcare for lower income communities, for Black, for Latinx communities, health problems come on earlier and more often, right? And so in some communities, you know, cognitive symptoms, start much younger, right? Risk of diabetes and heart disease and cancer might come on younger. And so I do think we have it upon us to think about kind of end of life conversations, not as something that belongs only to older adults, but 
to younger people, but there still isn't that much work in the area. And I suspect there's probably a little stigma, right? It seems kind of creepy to discuss with a 30-year-old the prospects of their own death unless they have an underlying health condition. Correct. Right. I mean, I've done my advanced directive and my MPOA in my 30s, but that's because we had hospice nurses come to our practice to talk to us about this. And they were like, do you want to go ahead and do yours? And we're like, oh, well, yes. We're, yep. We've got witnesses here and we've got people to sign. So then we did it and I have it in a safe place and a couple people know where it is. And so that's done for me, right? But not everybody in my age group certainly has that experience. And you're right. There is a stigma, right? You don't want to be 35 going to your doctor and they're talking to you about this. Exactly. Looking like the gloomy person. And I think, you know, if people know that it, it changes like anything else, right? Just like a will, like if someone does advanced care planning, they can change it, you know, when they get married, when they get divorced, if their health changes. So thinking about it as kind of a living, breathing document that people can kind of take with them over time, maybe is another way to make it seem kind of less scary and less final. Like there's a recognition, of course, things are going to change as, you know, we, we get older. Right, exactly. Um, is there any books you would recommend, perhaps maybe some that you've written <laughs> for those of us interested in this field? It's interesting. But the books I've written haven't been about death and dying. One book that I wrote that I actually do recommend, it's this little book called Worried Sick. And it's basically just a little kind of fun book about how to cope with stress and tips for dealing with stress. And it's very short and easy to read. Um, yeah, and I'd also if, recommend my book, Golden Years, which is a book that talks about, again, why is it that communities that have less income, less education, um, fare less well in a whole range of aging-related outcomes. So that's, that's more of an academic book and less of a news-you-can-use kind of book. Well, this being on this podcast is going to be news-you-can-use for yeah. all of the listeners. So thank you so much for giving us your time and your insight and your contributions to GSA. Great. Well, thank you for hosting this wonderful program. To learn more about the Gerontological Society of America, visit geron.org. The Gerontological Society of America was founded in 1945 to promote the scientific study of aging, cultivate excellence in interdisciplinary aging research, and education to advance innovations in practice and policy. For more information about GSA, visit geron.org.